You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. IATP obviously works in a lot of coalitions on our work, and I'm here with one of our coalition partners today to talk about factory farming, supply management, and uh, the big picture on the future of farming. I'm joined by Tristan Quinn Thibodeau, who is a biofuels, land rights, and food security campaigner at ActionAid USA. Tristan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Josh. It's great to be here. Um, start out, just um, talk about what ActionAid is, how ActionAid USA fits, and how ActionAid USA fits into that. Yeah, sure. So ActionAid is an international NGO. We're in 45 countries, and we work uh, in community with uh, small farmers, small-scale farmers, a lot of rural communities, uh, particularly women farmers in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia. Um, ActionAid was about, I think we're over 40 years old, ActionAid International, and we were founded in the UK, but I think uh, beginning around the uh, the year 2000, we decided that we didn't want to be an international organization doing work in the developing world in the global south, but based in the global north and calling the shots in the global north. So we moved our headquarters down to Johannesburg, South Africa. So we're a global south centered and led organization, um, which is unique, I think, for some international NGOs. And uh, also each country organization or each country in ActionAid is its own organization. So we as ActionAid USA interact with all the other ActionAids around the world in an international federation and we develop the, the organization strategy together. And um, we've always been a human rights and social justice organization. We believe that international development is not separated and not uh, not different than social justice and that human rights are the way to accomplish that. So um, what we do in the in the United at ActionAid USA is uh, we focus on a couple main issues. One is uh, you know the, the threats to the human right to food from industrial agribusiness, and uh, that comes in many different forms. We focus on the human right to land and defending that and expanding that because that's so important uh, for rural communities everywhere. And we focus on stopping climate change and ensuring climate justice that the communities that are um, impacted the most are the ones who get to um, determine the solutions and that you know that's here in the US that's also around the world yeah and so um, tell me a bit about your role as a campaigner there yeah so one thing that we've been focusing on in action in USA is how uh, especially over the last 10 years is how the uh, the biofuels industry and especially the United States is biofuels policies. These, uh, they're called the, man- the renewable fuel standard mandate. We've been following how that is, a way- is one of the main ways that agribusiness continues to expand, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, we saw that the mandates in conjunction with a number of other things following the food crisis in 2007 and 2008 led to a big spike in food prices that really impacted, you know, some of the poorest people in the world who live on a dollar or two dollars a day. And, um, and it also led to a, uh, contributed to a whole wave of land grabbing that was seen around the world as uh, banks and sovereign wealth funds and even foreign governments tried to acquire as much farmland as possible. Um, but we're, we will, the, the surprising thing is that right now we're seeing uh, a crash in prices and the, the group that are, that's being hit the hardest are farmers and especially farmers in the, 
you know, in, in countries like the United States where they're growing a lot of crops like uh, that are used in biofuels like corn and soybeans. And we've been hearing from different, you know, different uh, outlets, maybe for agribusiness interests that farmers really like these biofuels programs. So we wanted to talk to farmers and say, you know, ask them if that's really true and how things are going for them, you know, 10 years after these mandates. And so we traveled out to Iowa and visited with farmers organizations and found that, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, family farmers in rural communities are in a worse place today than they were 10 years ago, that uh, rather than, you know, helping them with the price of their grain, which is what they were told would happen with biofuels mandates, they've just seen more agribusiness control over the countryside. And the root causes of, of you know, why agribusiness and factory farming is continuing to grow and family farmers are continuing to disappear are just not addressed by policies like biofuels. So uh, let's, let's talk about, let's unpack that a little bit um, because we hear the same thing in trade policy, which is if we expand export markets, it's going to raise prices, farmers are going to do better. Obviously, that's not happening right now. It sounds like biofuels is in a similar position. Farmers get these ostensibly, you know, they're sold as great programs that are really going to boost the demand. Um, why doesn't the price increase? Probably the first reason is that the price doesn't increase because when there's an expansion in demand, let's say, they're able to just expand supply. So farmers are, you know, if you're, if you're in the Midwest, you're growing, maybe doing a corn and soybean rotation. Uh, maybe you do corn on corn from year to year. So you're growing more corn. Maybe you are expanding into, you have land that was in conservation or something like that, uh, or, you know, land you haven't farmed before. So you expand into that land, you're producing more corn. And essentially the, you know, the, the, the demand factors that was maybe causing your crop to the price to go up. Well, the supply is going to catch up and, and uh, the price is not going to, um, it's going to come back down. I think the other important factor is that um, while farmers are, like you said, sold this idea that, you know, if we create new outlets for your grains, you know, like I think export markets and more exports is, is the perfect uh, uh, sort of sister example. You know, if we create more demand, that'll increase the price. But what they don't tell farmers is that the, let's say the ethanol companies or the biodiesel companies that are buying the corn and soybeans, they, it's actually in their interest to have cheap corn and soy, because that means that they're paying less for the, the inputs for their product. You know, they're able to uh, make more profits or charge a lower price to, you know, get more of their product out into the market. So they're actually not, they have opposing interests to farmers. And then I'd say, you know, the third issue is that um, the, the main problem why farmers can't get a fair price or why, why prices are so low is that they're just constantly overproducing, constantly, constantly overproducing. I mean, we think, I think the prevailing common sense, people don't even know they think this, but we all think that there's, you know, we're just around the corner from a mass famine or there's not going to be enough food or something like that. But you know, the world has never been more agriculturally productive than right now. We produce way more than we need. And it's actually the problem. It's actually a huge problem. And uh, it puts farmers constantly at a, at a disadvantage. They're constantly being squeezed and taken advantage of. And if it weren't for, you know, a variety of government programs, taxpayer programs to keep farmers on the land, uh, which, in, you know, indirectly subsidize these big agribusiness companies, they would all go out of business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I think you could argue, too, that the 
um, agriculture programs we do have kind of perpetuate this low price structure because they make it easier for farmers to keep planting the big commodity crops and you know continuing to accept the low prices and kind of limp along um, rather than really reforming the system so that they could get a fair price. Um, so the first of your videos, um, uh, ActionAid USA put out two videos on uh, one on supply management, the other one on factory farming in Iowa. And in the supply management video, you talk a, a bit about um, what we just talked about, about what, you know, farmers aren't getting a fair price, but now talk about uh, supply management and uh, why ActionAid USA is advocating for that. Yeah, so I think, you know, it's important for us as ActionAid USA and as a, you know, an organization that works with farmers to listen to what farmers are talking about and what solutions they're raising. So, you know, we see the expansion of agribusiness as a threat, but then to, to family farmers around the world, to rural communities around the world, but then we have to figure out what the solutions are. And what we heard from farmers in Iowa, and uh, I think it's the same with farmers throughout the Midwest that grow grain and raise livestock, <clears throat> um, provide the country with milk, bread, eggs, you know, meat, these kinds of basic foodstuffs, that what they need is protection from agribusiness companies. And the way to do that, the, the way that's been done, that that's been done historically in the United States is with these supply management policies, which ensure that farmers uh, don't overproduce, that they produce just what can be consumed because that gives them a fair price in the marketplace. And to me, the way I understand it, it maybe is encounter is counterintuitive to a lot of people because most of us, uh, you know, get by we by earning a wage, but farmers don't earn a wage; they get paid a price for their crop or their meat or their livestock or something like that. And um, when they overproduce, when they produce too much, it's um, it, they get paid, you know, a way uh, they get paid a. Uh, basically a wage that's incredibly that doesn't cover their own costs like they can't um, it's like being paid you know less a poverty minimum wage or something like that and these policies are so these supply management policies that um, for most of the 20th century uh, guided U U.S. farm policy they were slowly chipped away um, and finally sort of killed off in the 90s which was the era of neoliberal globalization um, particularly in agriculture. And yeah, what we've seen since then is just steadily uh, uh, lower and lower farm prices, you know, when, when you adjust for inflation. And it just makes it harder and harder for farmers to stay afloat. They have to get bigger and bigger to survive and they've got to plant on more and more acres. So what kind of activities are you doing right now to uh, build support for supply management? Well, um, the videos that we put out that you can see at actionaidusa.org, those are a first step. I mean, we want people to, one, understand the idea behind it and understand the reality that farmers are facing. You know, I think uh, the sort of prevailing idea is that we have agribusiness, we've got so much industrial agriculture and these factory farms because of government subsidies that you know, make make this system artificially uh, cheap and affordable. And that is partially true, but it's also about overproduction. And if you don't rein in overproduction, you're not going to create the system that, you know, that's good for everybody. Um, so I want to get into the industrial agriculture side, because the second video you did was um, about the expansion of factory farming in Iowa. 
And one of the ways that we've seen overproduction happen in the livestock industry is through the expansion of uh, the uh, feedlots or CAFOs is the acronym for them. Um, what did your video find when you went out to Iowa and talked with farmers about that issue? Yeah, the, the, the CAFOs, the factory farms, the factory farm livestock in Iowa is a huge, huge issue for uh, not only farmers there, but also for the communities. We talked to a number of uh, current and former um, livestock farmers, hog farmers, one who was forced out of the business by the big factory farms and another who's just hanging on by finding you know, niche markets and being able to you know, raise a few hogs and, and find people that'll pay what, uh, you know, fair price for them or a price that, that reflects um, all the work that goes into it. And what we learned was, so we didn't really see the connection at first, but what we learned was that, you know, you don't get, you're not, it doesn't make economic sense to run these big factory farms, these big feedlots, unless you have um, overproduction that leads to artificially cheap feed grain. And we learned about how, you know, the, the family farm in, in the Midwest used to be structured and how um, reigning in overproduction sort of incentivized farmers economically to have a uh, diversified farm with some crops, with some livestock, with lots of crop rotations to build up the soil. You know, you when you don't you wouldn't you also didn't need to have a huge farm you could farm you know a hundred or two couple hundred acres which which is the about the i come from maine and that's a huge farm but in the midwest i know that's a small farm so um but yeah they talked about how you know it was really all about the pricing structure and all about the economics and sort of the environmental impact the community impact stems from the from the economic model and basically the idea is if if Grain costs the the uh, if you have to pay the price for grain that'll cover your costs, you know, then running a feedlot becomes insanely expensive. It just it's impossible to do. And the way that family farmers used to do it is they would grow the crop, but um, they would feed it to their their animals. You know, they'd grow their own feed. It was way too expensive to buy, and uh, and then also if you have that diversified system, you can you know, weather bad economic times. So if maybe your the price of corn drops, well, maybe you don't sell it. Maybe you feed it to your, your hogs or your cattle or your chickens or whatever. But maybe if the price of the livestock is not so good, maybe you, uh, you don't feed, you, you sell them off and you sell the corn to the market. You don't use it as feed. So, or you, you know, butcher the animals. So they gave farmers flexibility to stay on the land. And so what we learned is it's, the farmers really focused on, you know, they really see this as about, um, uh, it's really, if they get a fair price, they're able to stay on the land and they're able to do farming the way, the way it was done, you know, during the sort of golden age of agriculture. Um, it's interesting too, because when we overproduce in the U S and we export that around the world, we're also displacing farmers in those countries. And, but it's not like, you know, those farmers are small diversified farmers, they're feeling the same push to get bigger, big, get out around the world. And you've got the Gates Foundation and you've got some other, you know, big national or international foundations and organizations who are saying, we just need to improve crop yields in developing countries. Now, ActionAid is, um, you know, you're working in the U.S., but ActionAid is in 45 countries. I'm wondering if there's similarities between the work that you're doing here and what you're hearing from your colleagues uh, around the world. 
Well, yes, yes. To answer your question, yes, we definitely hear the same, uh, similar things with our colleagues around the world. I mean, agribusiness is a threat everywhere. I think the the one one difference that we note is that, you know, the small family farmers, let's say in Brazil, are um, they are very different than the agribusiness plantations that are producing, you know, plantations of uh, sugarcane or soybeans. In the U.S. and I imagine in Europe and in other, you know, uh, industrialized countries, it's a little bit different where you have family farmers that have kind of been absorbed into that um, agribusiness production model. Mm. So I think it makes it a little bit trickier um, to try to articulate how to get out of the agribusiness model of, of production and how to defend family farming in the context of it. You know, mm -hmm. We work with, uh, so ActionAid Brazil works with you know, small scale farmers, formerly landless farmers, and they're able to uh, you know, reclaim land that's either not being uh, used or not being used correctly. There's a, a, a law in the constitution that, that grants them this. And then they were able to engage in organic production, small scale production. And um, so that's kind of one thing that we, that we hear. And so that's a lot of the work that we do in other countries is to help develop what's called agroecology, which is like a small scale, uh, multifunctional way of, of producing a lot of primarily food crops, ecologically and, and in socially you know, beneficial ways. What I'm curious about is, um, you know, as you're advocating for the reinstatement of supply management, is there anywhere else around the world that you're looking to as a successful program? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting you say that about where, you know, there's a successful program for supply management. I think uh, the, the place that people are looking now is uh, at Canada, actually, because they've come under fire uh, and you guys at IETP know this probably more than anybody um, working on trade, but uh, the Canadian uh, supply management program for the dairy industry has come under fire from the Trump administration as being, you know, an unfair tariff hurting U.S. dairy farmers. But, um, you know, I think one of the interesting things to come out of this whole crazy uh, episode is that U.S. farmers, and especially U.S. dairy farmers who are in dire crisis right now, are actually talking to Canadian dairy farmers and learning how that supply management system works. And they're actually saying, oh, this actually sounds pretty good. I, uh, I would, why don't we have something like this? So I think the idea is actually percolating up from the grassroots through these kinds of um, exchanges and dialogues that for some reason weren't possible before this, this kind of bizarre moment. Yeah, and I, uh, IATP actually, I think, I don't know if we're going to have a public document available or not soon, but we've been working on sort of myths and facts about Canadian supply management. Um, and the the myth is that it's hurting U.S. farmers. The fact is that it's not. <laughs> right. Um, uh, okay, so uh, just to wrap up the podcast, um, if someone's uh, hearing this and they want to know more about supply management or they want to take action, uh, with stuff that you guys are working on, um, what is something they can do and how can they do it? Well, so first of all, you know, the, one of the main organizations that's uh, led on supply management and that we worked on, uh, worth on these videos is the National Family Farm Coalition. So definitely check out their website, nffc.net. Um, but also we've got all these materials on our own website, um, actionaidusa.org. 
there's a whole landing page full of uh, backgrounder and videos and uh, um, a couple blog posts as well. The one video is called The Mighty Buck and that talks about factory farming and the other one's called Get Bigger, Get Out and that uh, talks about um, sort of the, the agribusiness control over pricing and supply management. Um, and yeah, we've got, we're, we're also, you know, trying to take advantage of this moment where, you know, there's Congress is negotiating a farm bill. So we've got an action alert on the farm bill. It's a incredibly bad farm bill. And we also, you know, the, there's rumors that the Department of Justice is going to approve the, uh, the uh, Monsanto and Bayer merger. And there's a, we've got a last ditch action alert up to try to get Congress to, you know, least put some pressure on this administration and hold them accountable for this. And the, the last thing I'll say is that we're tracking, you know, the efforts to uh, reform the renewable fuel standard mandate that I talked about earlier. And there is some legislation that's being introduced called the Greener Fuels Act, which is going to try to cap how this, this law, you know, tries to expand agribusiness. And it's also going to track, it's going to mandate that the U.S. government has to track, uh, how these policies are impacting land access and whether they're facilitating land grabs in other countries. So definitely check out our website for more info on that. Well, Tristan Quinn Thibodeau, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, Josh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you've heard today, including to view those two videos Tristan talked about, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. I want to thank Andrew Risso for editing the podcast and remind you that you can download uh, Uprooted on Stitcher and iTunes and Google Play now, and we're working on Spotify. Um, and if you have any feedback about the podcast, you can email me at jwise at iatp.org. Thanks and have a good one.